You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is the broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at Northern Lights United Church on December 11, 2018. The theme was family fun. Co-hosts for the evening were Melissa Griffiths and Amanda Compton. Live music was performed by the Najuzu Marimba Band. First up tonight, we have Kate Bewley. She is the youngest of six children. She grew up wanting to be a physician, and during medical school, she met a handsome, red-headed gentleman who claimed to have grown up in Alaska. He went from convincing boyfriends to a husband with whom she went to the Arctic to start a family. They came to Juneau in 2003. Kate works as a family physician and spends her free time convincing people that her husband is not a single parent to three children. She enjoys everything that Juno has to offer and is thankful to call it home. She invites us to share in her family's alliteration dinner. Kate, come on up. So... I wrote this story down a few years ago. I wanted to try to remember the magic that was happening around my dining room table. And so I want to share a little bit of that magic with you. This fall season, I would be driving home from where I work uh, at the clinic, usually after six, and I'd be going from Twin Lakes out to the Ock Bay area where I live and where our home is. And NPR had a series of ads about the family dinner. And so I would hear it every night on the radio that if we all sat together at the family table, we would be better human beings, we would have better relationships, we'd keep each other out of jail, et cetera, et cetera. They were really convincing ads. So we were really trying to sit down every night at the family dinner table with the five of us and share stories together. There'd be a home-cooked meal with a eat the rainbow theme because we have an awesome chef and stay-at-home dad. And it took kind of an odd twist. I had several elementary student, elementary age kids and we were all kind of wanted to share our own stories and were all kind of competitive but polite. So they began to raise their hand as they ate their vegetables. Well, two of the three kids ate their vegetables and they would raise their hands to get their turn to tell the story of what was happening during their day. And they had great stories. They would tell us about the teacher's dad who came to the classroom and had brought a shark up onto his fishing boat accidentally and how he fought it and, un and, and get it untwined from the, the line and off the boat. And you could tell they were really paying attention. The details were so vivid, it was like you were there and the ocean was spraying you and you were getting out of the way from the, the shark's tail and relieved when the, the shark was off the boat. Sometimes you'd be eating your vegetables with your hand raised and you didn't really have a story, but you just wanted a chance. <laughs> and so when you got called on, you would say, you know, you would talk about what you ate for lunch that day and count how many sit-ups you did in gym class, and you weren't really fooling anyone at the table about your non-story. 
There was one teenager at the table. He was only 13 at that time. And he thought this whole exercise was super annoying. He told us with, by the eye rolling. But if, we, if anybody interrupted his stories, he had great stories about his fantastic swim sets and his antics in his algebra class, and he would shoot evil looks at the other siblings if they dare interrupt his story. Some nights, there weren't a lot of stories, and so they would look to their father to tell a story about growing up in Juneau, the same community that we are raising them. And he is a great storyteller. He likes to build up the characters and talk about the environment, the same environment that they're growing up in. It was a little more free range back then. And there would often be a moral at the end of the story. Usually it was, don't do what your father did. <laughs> and they would ask for like the same stories over and over again. Tell us the band class story. Tell us about how your mom called you overhead speaker at Floyd. And they would, we would have to pause dinner because there would be tears and lack of oxygen from these stories. I know you're wondering why, why am I up here. So <laughs> next, next time maybe you'll get him. So tonight the 10-year-old had his hand raised and he said, hey, you know what, my friends and I made our recess educational. We thought, wow, this is gonna be a really good story. He went on to tell us that they decided to add alliteration to ball tag at recess. He said, so he said, they, my given name was Shut Up Sam, and over there was Lunatic Lucy, and Manic Melissa, and on the other side, we had Kooky Kevin, and killer whale Karen, but he said, Mom, in this sweet little voice, Mom, the name they gave Brian, it was so gross, breastfeeding Brian. <laughs> we all put our vegetables down, and he's like, I thought of a much better name, Booger Brian. <laughs> we all picked up our food and we're like, yeah, that is a much better name. Sometimes they forgot that they were at home, and they would say, Miss Mitchell, Miss Mitchell, I mean, Mom, can I have dessert? <laughs> now they're all teenagers, and it's really difficult to get us all at the table together. They're, we have a lot, they eat in shifts. Um, they think there's no more hand raising. That is so uncool. We move to a different home. And I hate to say it, but sometimes I will text them and say, come upstairs to dinner. I don't think that's what NPR had in mind. But on occasion, when the chaos dies down, on the weekends usually, we all gather at the family table together, and someone will give to us another great story to add to our family album. Thank you. So our next speaker tonight is Sylvia Medeiros. All right. Sylvia Medeiros never made it to six feet tall. And she's only a little bit sore about it. She was raised on a small farm in rural Pennsylvania by her parents, a pair of idealist academics who went rogue and moved to the country to raise their kids. During those years, Sylvia and her sister were homeschooled 
and honed many skills, including, but not limited to, how to roll a horse that is stuck on its back. How to turn a breech birth when your goat is in labor. And how to behead a snapping turtle with a machete. Now a full-time resident of Juno, Sylvia is busy learning how to stay. My uncle Kevin died two years to the date before I was born. He was a doctor with the Peace Corps at the time. He was serving in Cameroon, and the autopsy report could tell us neither how nor why he had died. And so, given the mystery of his death, the coincidence of my birth two years later to the date, always seemed really important to me growing up, like I had some special connection with him, or a role within the family, like I was the one who was supposed to carry his ghost. And I was desperate to know who he had been. And my parents did nothing to dissuade me from the idea that there was something a little bit special about that two-year coincidence. They would often remind me of how I looked like him in certain lights, or how I said the things he used to say, or did the things he would have done. And I took all of those resemblances as clues to the mystery of the man that he had been and the relationship that I had with him. In the summer of 2016, my grandfather died. And so I went home to Pennsylvania to help my parents clean out his house. My job was moving boxes from the basement to the garage where other people would make decisions about what to do with those boxes. Which is how I found myself one summer evening in August, alone with about 100 boxes in the basement of my grandfather's house, one of which, up in the upper left-hand corner, seemed more important than the rest, although I couldn't quite put my finger on why. So I saved that one till last. And when it was just me and that box left in the basement, I went over and I picked it up off the shelf and brought it down, surprised by its weight for its small size. It was not very large. And I stuck my hand inside to see what was in there and was immediately met with this strange texture of um, ground up brick and soot. And so I looked closer at the box and I read the label and it said, Kevin Irwin, deceased January 6th, 1992. <laughs> so I took my hand out thinking, what a strange and intimate moment I was having with this man, <laughs> my uncle, <laughs> who I had been searching for my entire childhood, um, who is now here, present with me in the basement in really the only way he could be. And then I, I looked at my hand and I had this uh, following thought, which I really didn't like. I thought it was pretty weird. This follow-up thought as I was looking at my hand was, what if I ate that? The ashes, that is, what if I ate the ashes? <laughs> I was horrified, so I immediately tried to bury that thought, erase the moment, dust off my hand, close the box under the arm. I was headed up the stairs with my final box to give to my parents when I realized that of all the things I had taken up from the basement today, this was going to stress my mother out the most. She was already dealing with the loss of her father, and now I was gonna introduce the fact that we actually hadn't spread Kevin's ashes 25 years ago. So I decided I'd wait a little bit. And when I did bring it up with her a few days later, she gave me this look, and I knew who was gonna be spreading the ashes. And honestly, I was thrilled to do it. It made a lot of sense to me that as the person who had found the ashes, and as the kid with a weird birth coincidence, and as the kid who'd grown up thinking that 
maybe there was something special about that, that my mother would give me the task also of letting him go. And I was super excited because I was about to head out on a road trip. I was gonna go up and down the Northeast and across the country and eventually end up somewhere pretty far away. But first, I was gonna get to spread my uncle's ashes. He was gonna be a stop along the way. And so I would finally get to spend time with him, time that I'd always wanted to spend. So with the CRV, all packed up with most of my earthly possessions, I, um, I took my uncle and I clipped him into the passenger seat of my car and I headed up into the Northeast and we explored the mountains and we went out and we saw the ocean and then we went down through New Jersey. And as we got down to the uh, southern tip of New Jersey, I followed my mother's instructions. She had said, off the New Jersey Turnpike, near the very end, you'll find an exit marked only Martha. Martha, New Jersey is an abandoned mill town, and it was abandoned back in the 70s when my mother went there to play. Um, and so there wasn't much left of it. So she said, go through Martha, about a mile, you'll find a bridge. Cross the bridge and go another half mile, and you'll find yourself at a little pull-off, and that pull-off will lead you to this big, slow eddy in the, the River Oswego. And that river is one that um, your uncle Kevin and I used to kayak on a lot when we were kids. We spent hours there. That's where I want you to spread his ashes. So I got to the pull-off eventually, after going through the small abandoned town and across the bridge. And I cut the engine and I looked over at my uncle, wondering if we were ready, mostly if I was ready. Uh, so I unclipped him and unclipped me, and we headed off towards the river I took off my shoes and I rolled up my jeans and I stepped into the eddy, uncle in tow. And I realized at that moment that I had never done this before and I had actually made no plans for how to do this, let alone do it right. So on the spot, I thought up a ritual. I figured gratitude is pretty universally applicable as a spiritual practice, so I'll be, I'll be grateful. Um, so I opened up the box of my uncle's ashes and I dug my hands in there, because it was really compacted after having sat as an open cardboard box in a basement for 25 years. And I ground out one handful of my uncle, and I said, thank you. I said, thank you for being an amazing brother to your siblings, and thank you for being an amazing doctor. Thank you for taking care of us. And with each handful, I gave a new thank you. And eventually, I'd run out of uncle, and I'd run out of thanks, and my job was done. And I looked down at the eddy, which was swirling and swirling, and my uncle, who was also swirling in the eddy, <laughs> wondering, uh-oh, what if I didn't spread him in the right place? But it was done. So I stepped out of the river and I looked back. And as I looked back one last time, I realized that I was going to be the last person on earth to say goodbye to my uncle. And I wasn't ready. I had just found him. And I had so many more questions. There were so many things I wanted to know. I wasn't ready to let go of him, and I started panicking, and I'm an anxious nail biter. So without realizing it, my hand went up to my lips, and I was like, I didn't notice it was happening until I got the strange taste of ground up brick and soot in my mouth. And I looked at my hand, which was covered in the ashes that I had just scraped out of his cardboard box. 
And I had to think back to that moment in the basement and the thought that I'd buried there and laugh at myself because I had indeed eaten his ashes and now he was with me for good. So our next speaker is Mary Borthwick. Mary grew up in rural Iowa. After getting her college degree at UNI and teaching for a year, she was interested in a change. After volunteering for a summer at Sheldon Jackson College in Sitka, she thought Alaska was a good change. She spent a second summer volunteering, then moved to Juneau. She taught first at Marie Drake Junior High and then at Dzintikihini Middle School until she retired a few years ago. Welcome, Mary. I grew up knowing a fair amount about Borthwick family history. About a hundred years ago, someone compiled a brief history of the family and a genealogy that ranged from the 1300s to my father's generation and published it in a very small volume. I then knew that an early Borthwick fought for Scotland's freedom with Robert the Bruce in the 1300s. In the 1400s, Willem de Borthwick built a castle a little bit southeast of Edinburgh. In the 1500s, Mary, Queen of Scots, fled to that castle, trying to evade the army that was after her. In the 1600s, Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, and his Protestant Reform Army was headed toward Edinburgh. They stopped on the way at Borthwick Castle and told the current Lord Borthwick to evacuate the castle. Lord Borthwick, being a devout Catholic, said no. Cromwell then set up his cannon on the next hill and had his army bombard the castle. The castle walls are eight to 10 foot stone, so they did a little damage, but the castle stood. Lord Borthwick, however, rethought his response. In the 1800s, two Borthwick brothers came to America. One of them, looking for rich farmland, found his way to Southwest Iowa to do a good farming, and several generations later, my father was born, and then I was the next generation. You would think, after 700 years, that there would be a lot of Borthwicks, but it was a very tiny volume. When I came to Alaska, someone who had access to that kind of information told me that I was the only Borthwick in the state. Therefore, when Robert and I were thinking about getting married, I told him that I would like to keep the name Borthwick, and he supported and encouraged that. So we were married very quietly one weekend, 48 years ago tomorrow, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and the following week, I went back to school and told my colleagues that I had been married and I was going to keep my maiden name. They thought that was weird. They hadn't known any female who had kept her name after marriage. That winter, we were invited to a meet and greet. 
We went to the house, introduced ourselves to the hostess, who brought us in to introduce us to those who had already gathered, and she said, this is Robert Minch and Mary Borthwick. They say they're married. <laughs> that same winter, I was called into the superintendent's office. He told me that he had had an outraged phone call from a parent who said, there's a teacher at Marie Drake living down the street from me with a man that they are living in sin. I suspect Bill Overstreet took some satisfaction in being able to tell her that we were legally married. In 1976, my sister was given a brief sabbatical to take a course of study in Croydon, England, which is south of London. Robert and I thought that would be a great opportunity for us to visit England, and after her course of study, my sister could join us in Scotland. We could stay at Borthwick Castle, which was then being run as a hotel, and then we could tour the rest of Scotland. Knowing what the reaction had been like in Juneau to my not changing my name to my husband's, and not knowing how the Brits felt about that sort of thing, I made all our reservations as Mr. and Mrs. Minch, and I made the reservations at the castle as Mr. and Mrs. Minch and sister. So we flew to London, had a week in London. At the end of that week, we flew, or we traveled to the north of England and rented a car. As we were filling out the paperwork, the agent there said, uh, do you know how many Americans it takes to drive a car in England? And we looked blank and he said, it takes two, one to steer and one to shout left. <laughs> Old joke, we thought. So we got in the car, headed for the next part of our adventure, and as we hit the main highway and Robert started to turn, I had to shout, left! And it wasn't the only time. We traveled west into Wales. We turned north. We came back to the city of Chester. We traveled along Hadrian's Wall. And then we turned into Scotland and came to Borthwick Castle. As we drove in the courtyard, we saw the dent in the wall that Oliver Cromwell's castle had caused. In the great room when we registered, we saw the window through which Mary Queen of Scots, dressed as a page, escaped the approaching army. They took us up a stairwell in the tower and gave, showed us to our room in that tower. We left our luggage there, came down and told our hostess that we were headed for the Edinburgh train station so that we could pick up my sister who was traveling up from London. I had not mentioned my family name or her name yet. I thought my sister could share in the surprise that we were going to give our hostess that a member, a distant member of the family had come to stay at the castle. And I picked up the sister, or my sister and brought her back, and I introduced her to our hostess and said, this is my sister, Rebecca Borthwick. The woman raised her eyebrows and said with utter disdain, Borthwick, another Borthwick. <laughs> we have so many Borthwicks, we can't get rid of them. <laughs> Not quite the reaction I'd been hoping for. Thank you. Our last story before our intermission. Tonight we have Dylan Harris. Dylan Harris grew up on family land in Chunky, Mississippi. He currently calls Massachusetts home where he is finishing up a PhD. 
He travels back and forth between West Virginia and Alaska doing research and has lived in seven countries doing all kinds of work, from measuring glaciers in the Andes to delivering pizza in New Orleans. He likes to think he has lived a thousand lifetimes in his 29 years of existence and is deeply grateful for every second of it. Come on up, Dylan. So this is a story about a family member that I met just 10 years ago. Uh, someone who took care of me for three months while I was living in a monastery. And someone who I haven't talked to since. And his name is Monk Dad. So when I was 19 years old, I thought it'd be a great idea if I did my undergraduate thesis research in northern India uh, with Tibetan former political prisoners who were exiled there. Um, I did some research ahead of time. I sent some emails. I tried to make a few phone calls. No one got back to me, uh, so I just showed up. Uh, I got off of the plane. You know, I walked up to this door of this organization. I knocked, and I was like, I'm here. I'm here to help. And they were like, oh, I mean, I don't know if you could just like show up and do something like that. And I was like, I mean, I'm here to help. You know, I'll sweep the floors. I will, you know, teach English, whatever you want. I'm here. And they were like, we don't know if we can trust you because, you know, this is a sensitive topic. And I said, you know what? Fair. Crushed, but understandable. I walked to a hostel nearby and I checked in, put my backpack down, went to sleep. And around four in the morning, I had a beating on the door and something about the water broke. I'm not even sure what happened, but I got kicked out. Four o'clock in the morning, I have my giant backpack. It's dark. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know anyone. I was just kind of hanging out. And then the sun came up, and I remembered I had seen a monastery uh, just close to the front of town. And so I went to the monastery, walked down the steps, and I knocked on the door. Uh, three monks answered. They were like, uh, hi. And I was like, hey, I'm here to, you know, live, I guess. I don't know. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have anywhere to go. Uh, I'm here to do this work, and no one trusts me yet, so I don't know. Can I just, like, stay here? I don't know. And they're like, I, I, okay, I don't know, kind of off guard. Uh, and they found me a room, and they said, you know, how about you start teaching English to monks in the morning? And I said, great, can handle that. So I, I woke up in the mornings, and I taught English to monks, young monks, and then I would work at a library sometimes. I talked to tourists who would come through about the Tibetan situation. And I did that for about two weeks. And then I woke up one morning in terrible pain. I was doubled over. I had chills. I had a fever. I was puking. I uh, didn't know if I could you know, stand up, sit down. Nothing helped. Uh, and I didn't know who to talk to. And I knew there was another woman uh, who was staying in the monastery from North Carolina. So I knew she spoke English. But she was trying to eat, pray, and love. She wasn't trying to hang out. And I was trying to give her her space. <laughs> didn't want to bother her. But I didn't know who else to talk to. So I crawled up the steps, knocked on her door. And the second she opened it, I threw up everywhere. <laughs> all over her, all over the floor, all over the walls. And as I'm puking, I think she rang a bell or something. I don't really remember. Uh, but three monks came and ran up to me, scooped me up, ran over to the temple put me on a table, they started to rub my tummy, light some incense, say some prayers, and after a few minutes, I was like, I don't know if this is helping. You know, I might, I might need to see a doctor. So one monk picked me up, carried me all the way to the clinic, carried me in his arms. And keep in mind, this clinic's in a pretty rural place. They had one basically big room where you could be sick. Mostly they deal with, you know, rabies, tuberculosis. I couldn't even articulate what was wrong with me. I was just like, ah! help, sick, blah, blah, you know, being carried around by someone. 
put me in a bed. Uh, they wrote me a, uh, a recommendation for a doctor in Delhi on a post-it note, put it in my pocket. And they gave me a giant bag of morphine, a sheet of green pills that I found out later was horse tranquilizer. <laughs> so I took my horse tranquilizer, hooked up to my bag of morphine, and I passed out for nine hours. <laughs> and I would wake up every 10 minutes or so, every 20 minutes, and my monk, this guy, would be sitting there holding my hand, just holding it. And I'd wake up, and he'd have big eyes, big smile, to ask if I was okay, and I'd pass back out. And this happened for nine hours. And so I guess my morphine ran out. It was time to go. I guess I felt better, but I couldn't really feel anything. And so the monk helped me waddle to a store nearby, and he got me the equivalent of Tibetan chicken noodle soup, uh, and he took me back to the monastery, all but tucked me in, you know, put me in my little bed, pulled up the covers, and he was like, you know, should we call your parents or something? I don't know. You're, you seem pretty young. You're 19. And I was like, you know, um, I didn't tell my parents I was coming here. In fact, no one knows I'm here. My family thinks I'm in Florida. And he was like, well, that's stupid. Um, I guess, in the meantime, since you're so committed to being here, you can call me your monk dad. And so I did go to Delhi, and that was a really harrowing, awful experience, and, and another, it's a longer story. But I did come back, and I spent the two months there, almost three months, um, working. I eventually was able to get the trust of the community and start interviewing folks and, and did a pretty cool project, I think. And every day this guy would ask me how my day was, made sure I had food to eat, made sure I had a place to stay, really took care of me. My mom did eventually find out because when I was in the hospital in Delhi, I had to call her and say, you know, hi, I'm in a hospital. I don't have any money. I'm really sick and I'm not sure what's wrong. Also in India. So she was frustrated, <laughs> helped. And then months later, my dad got a check in the mail in Mississippi uh, for, I don't know, something like two or $3,000 from a hospital. I was like, what's this? And I was like, by the way, I was in India this one time recently. Uh, that's how he found out. All that to say, uh, you could probably tell from the, the way I didn't tell them initially that my family and I aren't terribly close. Um, we get along, we love each other, but we don't talk about a lot. So this is pretty typical for me and my family, honestly. Um, and I share this story just because, you know, I think in all my travels, it's important to acknowledge that if you're open to it uh, and you're able to, uh, there's family all over the place. And this guy took care of me. I might have died. I actually still have no idea what was wrong with me. Um, but every day he took care of me and made sure I was okay. And he really meant it when he said he was my monk dad. And I really believed it. And all that to say, family's everywhere. And so, thank you. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These family fun stories were recorded on December 11th, 2018. Have a story to share? Look us up on Facebook or sign up at mudrooms.org.
next up we have Kirsha Hughes Scandies. Um, Kirsha Hughes Scandies grew up mostly in West Virginia until moving to Alaska in 2002 and Juneau in 2004. One biology degree, a couple short-lived attempts to move elsewhere and a stint at the state later, and she's once again a UAS student and still learning to live in polite society. So, uh, when I was eight, my parents decided to relocate our family from Manhattan to rural West Virginia. I mean, New York is an expensive city, and my younger brother and sister had just been born. And it was the 80s, so the crime wave was still kind of rising. And so, my parents have always been proudly overprotective. They thought, let's get back to the country, let's go someplace safe. They'd bought a little patch of land in West Virginia for dirt cheap in the 70s when their hippie friends were all doing the same for a back-to-the-land movement. And they had a little log cabin that they'd all like built during a work party together. So we had a goal. We had a destination. We packed up the, the car with kids and belongings and drove down. The property had been left empty for the better part of eight years, of course. So there was a lot of cleanup to do. So what we did was we all moved into a family-sized tent while my parents slowly but surely bushwhacked their way up the road <laughs> to get to the cabin. You know, put in a few days bushwhacking, get to another flat spot, move the tent. It was basically just one big floor bed. And then once we were able to splice into the electric line, a TV and VCR in the corner, we're not savages. <laughs> So once we got you know, all the way up to the cabin that summer, got all the old detritus that had been left in the 70s out of there and made it habitable, we all moved in. And this is, you know, think Lincoln Logs, like little box of logs with a little loft space and a little A-frame roof, really cute. Five people in two rooms, not so bad. Two of them were still babies. And in the summers, our older brother would come down and spend the summer with us. During the school year, he still lived in New York with his mom. It was very rustic, no plumbing. Uh, you know, we're the better part of a mile off the hardtop up a very bumpy, barely drivable dirt road. Uh, we did have electricity, of course. But in terms of indoor plumbing, there was a bathtub set up in what eventually became kind of a kitchen space. And there was a garbage can next to the well in the yard. You'd fill that up bucket by bucket. And if you're lucky, it was a sunny day and it got to sit out there all day and get warm. And there was a garden hose run under the house, up through a hole in the kitchen floor, into the bathtub. So we weren't really in any state to receive company. So having friends from school over was strictly forbidden. And being from New York, our overprotective parents were not so hot on us heading off to random other kids' houses. You know, their parents are probably the kind of people who put razor blades in apples. So really, outside of school, us siblings just had each other, and it was great. I mean, I think that's why we're still so close-knit to this day, because we would have our little squabbles and fights, but we knew at the end of the day we were the only friends we had up the hollow. And my older brother is just a little more than a year older than me, and there's just a little bit more than a year between my younger brother and sister, so we would split off into two pairs very neatly, big kids, little kids. You know, a little mutual antagonism, but... It was all in good fun. 
after several years at the cabin, it was drafty, especially with each new addition. You know, they kind of just cut a hole, a doorway in the logs and make a plywood extension. And the windows were all just screen and plastic in the winter. So we really wanted someplace warmer. And they thought, all right, we'll just start from scratch. We'll build a new outbuilding. We'll build it closer to the highway. It'll be less inconvenient, easier to heat. But while we're working on this, my older brother and I were still too young to really be of any usefulness to the endeavor. And my little brother and sister were too small to be safe at this work site in our parents' eyes. So they put me and my big brother in charge of watching them at the cabin. And there was no shortage of stuff to do growing up there. There were natural grapevines that you could use like jungle gyms, or you could go hunting for crayfish in the creek, strictly catch and release. It's West Virginia, not Louisiana. So no animal cruelty in this story. <laughs> um, but the thing was, when we were babysitting my little brother and sister, we had to stick at the cabin because they didn't want us running around in the woods if no grown up if anything goes wrong. And I'm really not sure why they let my brother and I babysit in the first place because the last time they'd left us home alone, we decided that it would be totally fine for him to watch me try to ride the horse, again, strictly forbidden without adult supervision. And in a panic that while she was chasing a horsefly, she was going to topple over and crush me under her, I had just preemptively leapt off her back and broken my arm. And a year or two after that, they had tried le letting me babysit, and uh, I was really excited to show off my latest library acquisition to my younger brother and sister. So I kind of built a pillow fort in the living room and dimmed the lights down, got ambient lighting, and put on the Jaws soundtrack, utterly traumatizing them. But still better the devil you know than the devil you don't, or the unsafe work site. So stick around the cabin, just be good, just watch your brother and sister, don't get in trouble, I'll be back soon. And, you know, I mean, yeah, we had the TV and the VCR, and we even had an Atari, but there's only so many times you can play those two games until you get bored of it. So we needed to spice it up, we needed to do, do something fun, and we needed to include my little brother and sister. So while they were off playing happily on their own in the yard, we decided we'll recreate our very own movie and let them be a part of it. So my older brother found his best death contortion and grimace, and we took the ketchup that we'd found in our old fridge, just sprinkled it liberally all over him. I did my best horror movie scream, called for help. Little brother and sister come running in. They're terrified. Oh my gosh, he's dead. They're crying hysterically. And then, I mean, that's all the, the prelude. Then he comes back to life, right? This is a zombie movie. So he comes lurching up. I can't remember if I caught the zombie virus right away. I suspect I probably did. And worst of all, and you can't make this up, as my little brother and sister went running out of the house, tear-stained, horrified, probably traumatized for life, our father comes gunning up the hill in his Ram Charger, like, tired, ready for a break from like building a shack by himself to find us pursuing these two like tear-stained little toddlers. I don't, I don't know why, but I'll tell you what, it did not get me off of babysitting in the future. Our next speaker tonight, Peter Moores. Peter is from a large family of seven children and two older brothers, one older sister, and two younger brothers and one younger sister. In other words, Malcolm in the middle. 
Peter was born a leap year baby in, is it Kearney, Nebraska? There you go. But spent his formative junior high and high school years growing up in Boulder, Colorado. His grandparents owned a crop farm in Kansas, which is where his story takes place. Hey, y'all. That's a, a Kansas a colloquial greeting, or at least I think it is. I haven't been there in a long time. Thought I would lose my place in this story, so I wrote. I'm not supposed to have notes, but I have five things written down here. This is the order in case I get out of, out of line here. It's going to be fishing, bullfrogs, cats, dogs, and, and mice. I don't know. Actually, the story begins 170 years ago during the Great Irish Potato Famine where that famine took nearly a million lives and lost another one million Irish citizens to immigration, which is what happened for my great-great-great-grandfather, Joseph Fox. He immigrated to the United States, where he homesteaded 320 acres of prime farmland in the southeast corner of Kansas, near a small town called Girard. This family passed, the, uh, the farm passed down through the generations in my family, eventually ending up in the possession of my grandparents' family, and that's Ed and Florence Fox. During these, the mid-1970s, my family, uh, now living in Colorado by way of Nebraska, would spend time down on a farm, and especially my immediately older brother, Joseph, and my immediately younger brother, Franklin, we would spend a, a month or two on, a, on the farm each summer. And we would, uh, we would first check in down there and immediately get poison ivy. That, you got that every time. And then so you, you end up with the poison ivy, you get the pink calamine lotion on you, you stand in front of the fan for a while till it dries on you, and then you move on. My, uh, my mom would affectionately refer to us down on farm as the monkey boys. That's what she called us. So us monkey boys would, would have a lot of free reign on the farm while my grandfather would be off cropping, you know, working the, the farm, which was mostly uh, milo and grain crops, but it also had pasture land for cattle. And a lot of, uh, it had five fish and frog-filled ponds, as well as a few slow meandering streams which we would have free reign to explore around the farm. We would go around and just check things out. We would discover things on our own, such as electric fences really are shocking, you know. And then, and then we also found out that cows don't necessarily defer to three young boys with sticks. You know, we got run back under many a fence, especially when there was a steer involved. So we would, we would just have our fun, we'd find our way. We're from a, a Catholic family, and in my, in my immediate family, we're all named right after uh, either, you know, disciples or saints, and, and my moniker, Peter the Fisherman, I, I loved it because actually I absolutely love fishing, and, at, and to that end, there was this, all these ponds on the farm. There was a couple of working, you know, spin casters, but mostly just a whole bunch of bamboo fishing poles. You had a little line for that go out fishing, we'd dig up some earthworms, and go to the ponds. Occasionally, my favorite uncle would arrive, and we would get to go harvest bullfrogs with a 22. 
Now, we didn't get to, you know, have the guns when he wasn't there. We, we had to devise our own way to harvest bullfrogs, and I came up with this idea all on my own. I, I would take fishing flies and tie them to the end of a, you know, fish line bamboo pole and hang it in front of the bullfrog, and bam, you know, they would hit it, and, you know, frog on a stick. And they'd bring those things back, you skin them up, and, you know, you give them to grandma, she fries them up. And if you've ever had, you know, frog legs, you folks can help me out with this, then you know they taste like chicken. That's right. They taste like chicken. So <laughs> we loved harvesting the frog legs, but we would we'd do other things too. Like occasionally we would, you know, we'd go to these ponds and we'd want some of the farm animals to come with us. One particular time, and I'm not sure why, but the, the farm kittens followed us to the ponds and perhaps led there by a little cheese trail we let down for them. I'm not sure. But no matter what, my brother Joseph then, when we got to the pond, proclaimed to us that all of God's creatures know how to swim. And with that, he scooped up the nearest kitten, chucked it real deep into the pond. And guess what? And although they may not like it, cats do know how to swim. They're not necessarily smart because they would swim right back to Joseph where the swim test would continue until they figured out how to you know, swim to the other side of the pond. The farm had this 40 acres of old growth black walnut trees, which, which had a rare and tasty morel mushroom grove in there. You could, to this day, you could still find them there. I believe they haven't cut it down yet. One time in, the, in our meanderings through this forest grove, we came upon a large spiny shell turtle. It's a soft shell turtle. It was a big one, about 20 inches across the back. We tried to corner it with sticks. We were going to bring it home and give it to my grandmother, and she was going to make us some tasty turtle soup. But unfortunately, it got away from us, and I'm pretty, pretty glad. I'm pretty sure she's glad that, that it did. And, and to this day, I still haven't had any turtle soup. Still waiting for that. So uh, we did other things on the farm, but one of the things that sticks with me most was the fact that we had, you know, every good farm has a dog, and there was a, our good dog was a collie, and, as, and her name was Fanny. As she started getting up here in years, my grandfather set about, you know, trying to get another dog, and he found a black lab that he simply called Blackie. Now, on days that we'd go fishing and we couldn't find the earthworms, my mother would, grandmother that is, would sometimes give us some chicken liver to fish with. But she would be very stern and she'd say, do not leave this liver on the hooks, you know, because the dogs will eat it. You know, but boys being boys, that's exactly what we did. We came out and found that Black had eaten the hook and it was dragging a bamboo fishing pole around the yard. And when my grandfather found this out, he, he strangely enough, didn't scold us. I, I thought he would. He just simply said, let's get Blackie, put, her in, in a, put him in a, the truck. And I, we, I thought, great, we're going to the vet. We're going to save him. And, but when he came out with a shotgun, I knew a very different ending was going to happen. It's one of these life lessons that you just learn and you'll never forget. The times that I spent on the farm, I, I think of it as, you know, we had a lot of cousins at nearby farms. We would have fun barbecues. I think of the endless skies and endless, you know, crop fields, barbecues that would, you know, be with family and friends. We'd put, you know, the freshly picked, you know, corn on the grill, and, and we had fresh picked watermelon. And, of course, as always, 
frog legs. Our last speaker of the night is Katie Bosler, and she assures me there is no animal death and nothing terribly graphic. So uh, Katie likes telling stories and loves hearing stories told. She's the alternating host of Stormy Weather, which is Wednesdays from 9 to 11 p.m. on KRNN, and she hosts and produces the 49 Writers Active Voice podcast. About 100 years ago, no, she's not that old, Katie's paternal grandparents immigrated to Ellis Island from Latvia. In the late summer of 2017, Katie, her husband, and two grown children returned to the land of her ancestors, embarking on a family heritage bicycle tour along the Baltic coast. Come on up, Katie. Latvia, the land of my paternal ancestors, is heavily influenced and really shaped and affected by the countries around it. Just to give you a quick geography setting, we have the Baltic states, which are on the west coast of the former Soviet Union. So you have Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, small countries, really the, the size of small states here. Just north is St. Petersburg, Russia, just below that, Finland. And then across the Baltic Sea, you have Scandinavia, you've got Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. And these countries, for the better part of 900 years, were either subjugating or at war with or heavily influencing Latvia. In preparation for this family heritage bike ride that we took in the region in the summer of 2017, I hired a genealogical researcher in Riga, Latvia, who spoke and read and could translate Latvian, German, and Russian. And we learned that my great-great-grandparents were serfs who worked um, under a German landlord and they couldn't even take a last name until the 1830s, so she could only go back so far. The website of the company that we went with to help us with our journey was called Baltic Bicycles. And on the website, they had these pictures that really beckoned us to ride through the old world. And there were pictures of men with balding farmers with horse carts, and women in kerchiefs looking placidly at the camera. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. We're just going to ride through the old world. It will be not unlike when my grandparents emigrated to Ellis Island. My grandmother in 1911, my grandfather in 1913, they'd met in the United States. My grandmother was born in Riga in 1895, and she took a steamship to Ellis Island, alone at the age of 16. My grandfather, on a steamship also two years later, he was a little older, he played the horn in the band. So we start on our trip, my husband Carl and our children, Caitlin and Kanan, on this trip in August of 2017 in Lithuania. We're in Lithuania for a couple of days, and I'm really looking forward to this old world. Well, we get, we've passed some amusement parks. We 
ride through a national park, through pine forests along the Baltic coast. We see sunsets and sunrises and do some swimming. It's very nice. But really what I'm really anxious about is getting to the Latvian border. And two days later, there we are at the Latvian border. We're taking the requisite selfies and pictures in front of the crests of Latvia. And there is the European Union sign, blue with a circle of gold stars. And that means that Latvia, of course, with the fall of communism 30 years later, had gotten a, more, a lot more autonomy in the last 30 years. Now they're members of NATO and the European Union. We get on the road in Latvia. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for the horse cart and the lady in the kerchief. And we're in a major construction zone where half the road has been excavated. It's just one lane. It's dusty. It's rocky. It's a little scary. And there's a couple of kind of ominous things that happen as soon as we got on that road. There's a construction sign, a aluminum sign that gets knocked over by an oversized European RV. Then over here, just kind of off the, the steep drop-off is a, a pigeon with a broken wing kind of flying around and trying to, couldn't, couldn't get off the ground. And it was just kind of ominous. And so that whole first day, we're just starting and stopping, you know, having to share the road with these cars. We got pushed to the side of the road a couple of times and had to let the cars go by. And after that first stressful day, after several kilometers, we're finally done with that part. And there's the equivalent of a Latvian Denny's on the side of the road. We stopped there, and we had the biggest potato pancakes I've ever seen in my life. They were like uber latkes, you know, with sour cream. And I thought, okay, we're, this is peasant food. Maybe we're going to get to what I saw on the website. The next day, we're on a major thoroughfare. It is a two-lane road just filled with cargo trucks, logging trucks, like we're, we're talking the kinds with tons of logs exposed that you're sharing the road with, speeding sedans and Audis, maybe driven by Russian oligarchs, who knows? Then it starts raining, and it's not just sprinkles. We're talking sheets of rain. It was like riding a bicycle through a car wash. So you're, 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 there's negligent white line. You're trying to just kind of, you know, maintain survival ride. And you're in this vortex where the truck comes by, the earth is shaking, you don't want to get pulled into the lane. And the most terrifying moment, one of the most terrifying moments for me, was all of a sudden our daughter Caitlin was obscured by two cargo trucks going opposite directions. And, you know, my mother bear anxiety was rising. Well, after a few seconds, the trucks cleared and there was Caitlin pedaling along. She was just fine. But at this point, you know, two days into Latvia, it's not the old world, and I'm just getting a little nerve-wracked. And we pull over at a bus stop finally. I plop on a bench and I say, I did not sign up for this bull <laughs> And my son, Kanan, is kind of standing there looking at me and just laughing <laughs> and snickering. And I went, oh, yeah, you're the one who did that trip south a few years ago where you rode for two years down the coast of the Americas. And I think what he was saying in his laughter and looking at me was, Mom, it's not all going to be roses. Well, the next day, sure enough, we got on a regional road away from the coast, and things opened up for us a little bit. We had a white line. We were riding through forests again. 
We got on some back roads. Then it got really incredible. We were riding through fields of lavender and gold, and there were, hay, you know, the hay bales that, that, that they've kind of spun around into big circles. And the sky was blue with these cumulus clouds that looked like a 19th century painting. And at that point, you know, I just kind of forgot about almost that I wasn't seeing the peasants yet in the old world. We got to Riga after about eight days of this, 250 miles later, the capital. And we met with a genealogical researcher, Agnes. And she showed us a map, and she showed us our family records that she had unearthed in the archives. And we learned that we rode right through where my great-great-grandparents were serfs working on the land for a German landlord. And I thought, that is so cool. I kind of forgot about, you know, that we didn't get to see what I saw on the website. But then I thought, wait a minute, on that really stressful day when we were getting sucked into the vortex and the rainstorm, there was a woman who was standing, tending something green on the side of the road, and she waved at us. And I think she was wearing a kerchief. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on December 11, 2018 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Family Fun. The proceeds from this season's first four shows were donated to Family Promise. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Sarah Hannon, Melissa Griffith, Jeff Smith, David Noon, and me, Rich Moniak. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.